This is Island, a podcast presented by FHL Bank Atlanta. I'd like to thank Scott Brandon and the Federal Home Loan Bank of Atlanta for inviting me to deliver this podcast today. Though this is an audio-only presentation, there is a companion slide deck available for download at the corporate website. So, it is the week before Christmas, and I am coming to you live from cold and rainy Columbus, Georgia, headquarters of Synovus, where I work, and where we've all had a very interesting year. Obviously, the pandemic has affected almost every aspect of the industry and, and certainly every major CRE sector. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about today, how COVID-19 has affected commercial real estate up to this point and how things should play out through 2021. I'm going to spend a brief amount of time setting the backdrop on the economy, which if you are listening, you've lived through it and you know what happened, but it helps to talk about what is different between 2008 and 2020 in terms of a recessionary environment. I'm then gonna walk you through a couple of property valuation examples to revisit the fundamentals of the income approach and we will keep the math light, I promise. Next, I'm gonna run through some sector updates, but I'm going to omit warehouse as it is clearly the hottest performer in CRE. COVID-19 has in many ways benefited the sector and it is of less concern than the other four major food groups. And after the sectors, I'll make a few summary points and give you four things that I'm watching this month which should influence where the recovery goes from here. So let's start with the economy. If there is one question I've answered more than any other this year, it is, Sonovus ran to, parentheses, insert real estate problem here, in the Great Recession of 2008. How will you avoid that this time? And my general response is that this is a totally different scenario from 2008 for a multitude of reasons. So let's run through what makes this time different. First off, the economic policy response to COVID-19 was extremely fast and broad-based this time around. Actions taken consisted of regulatory relief, which allowed for deferrals on troubled loans, rescuing businesses and general consumers alike. Uh, rates were cut to zero. Uh, multiple lending and grant programs aimed at small businesses were implemented. And those consisted of P3 loans, many of which have already become grants and have been forgiven idle grants and loans, and then the Main Street Lending Program. Uh, significant stimulus efforts were passed, like the economic impact payments up to $1,200 for individual taxpayers. And then, of course, the CARES Act Unemployment Benefits Kicker. Another difference between the 2008 and 2020 environments is that the regulatory relief and assistance from banks who participated in the various lending programs has been possible in part because banks are well capitalized and they have more diversified loan portfolios. This was certainly not the case in 2008. A very significant difference between now and 2008 is that there is no housing crisis. Let me stress that. There is no housing crisis, unless you call lack of supply a crisis. This housing shortage was a factor heading into the pandemic, and it is a reason home values have continued to rise, most recently up 8.1% in the FHFA's most recent Southeast reading. Unlike 2008, the major asset for most Americans has not devalued and it's helped to preserve spending power at the mid to upper income levels. One factor that is easily overlooked is the vast difference in technology today versus 2008. Although 2008 may not seem like a long time ago, think of it this way. 
The iPhone was less than a year old by then. That device has certainly had an immeasurable effect on demand for office and retail space. I think it's fair to say that the CR industry has experienced nothing short of a revolution since the last recession. Lastly, and this is the most obvious, our current situation stems from a health crisis, not a financial one. You can argue whether or not we were headed into a financial crisis pre-COVID, and I would have projected a recession about mid-2021, but the economy was positive before the pandemic became a factor. This was a true black swan event that hit fast and hard and could, potentially, man, I'm hoping, go away faster with vaccine viability. Beyond a few higher profile industries, COVID-19 has generally accelerated trends that were already in place. For example, COVID-19 did not invent e-commerce and it did not destroy brick and mortar retail. But on the other hand, it is certainly helping. Because of this, the unwind could be a little slow. All right, shifting into valuations. Uh, valuations may be the largest question mark out there, and we can all speculate uh, as to where things are, but let's look at the fundamentals and use them as a guide to form our own opinions. I'm gonna cover two property types, uh, multifamily housing and power center retail. And then later in the talk, I'm, I'll mention some real world findings for hotels, because that sector is of great interest. All right, to start, we have our formula for one-year direct capitalization method of the income approach. This is the value of the property to investors, and you've seen it in any commercial appraisal. It's real simple. It's the net operating income divided by the cap rate equals value. So obviously, any changes in the net operating income or the cap rates will affect those values. We're going to concentrate on NOI and cap rates for these examples. I'll mention some other considerations, but it's a good exercise to run through these and show you the effects of just the math alone. So let's start with NOI and look at the major components of that, rent and expenses. Just think of NOI, it's basically the revenues minus expenses. So these are the major components. Let's take two examples from RERC's third quarter 2020 CRE report. Multifamily and power centers, like I said, and we'll see how they have fared compared to the same report for the first quarter of 2020. So in the first quarter, uh, multifamily sector had rent growth of 2.7% and expense growth of 2.7%. So there was no differential between those two. Power Center was a little bit different story. It was trending downwards. It had rent growth of 2% and expense growth of 2.8%. So a differential of negative 0.8% there. Now moving ahead to third quarter, we see some definite degradation in those sectors. Multifamily rent growth is down to 1.9% and expense growth has accelerated to 2.9%. But Power Center shows some real weakness with no rent growth, 0%, and 2.8% expense growth, so a differential there of negative 2.8%. So keep those in mind as we go through the calculation. Next, let's shift to cap rates. So let's look at three different sources here. Number one, uh, we're gonna look at PwC investment grade cap rates. This is the old Corpax report for those of you with gray hair. These are survey-driven rates. Uh, looking at multifamily for the second quarter of 2020, cap rates were 5.19% in the third quarter, 5.22%, so not much movement at all. Power center uh, caps were 6.7% in the second quarter, up to 6.81% in the third quarter, so negligible movement there. Second, uh, I like to look at RERC Southern Region Tier 1 caps. Now, these are survey-driven as well but they apply to our footprint here in the Southeast. 
So looking at the same sectors, uh, power center cap rates went from 7.2 to 7.4%, not a big increase at all, and apartments went from 5.7 to 5.9%, so 20 basis points in each case. Lastly, uh, looking at real capital analytics, hedonic series cap rates, these are cons uh, consist of real cap rates with some other economic metrics uh, added to the mix. Power center there uh, went from 6.5% to 6.6%, so a negligible jump there. And multifamily went from 5.3% to 5.2%, so an actual drop from second quarter to third quarter there. So taking into account those slight movements, I'm going to say that cap rates are not moving uh, in the example that we're going to see. Now, I know that that may be being a little generous, I imagine, um, but we'll look at a, at a contrary example on the next page. So looking at multifamily, we had a 1.9% rent increase and a 2.9% ex, uh, expense increase. Let's say we've got a gross potential rent of 100,000, vacancy rate of 10%. Trust my math on here. I know it's going to be difficult to follow on the audio. An operating expense rate of 40%, that gives us a net operating income number of 54,000, which we cap at 7%, and our value is 771,000. But if we raise the rent by 1.9% and we raise the expense by 2.9%, then we end up with a net operating income of $53,962. We cap it at 7%, and our value drops just a hair, but it drops to $770,000. So we're right on the line with these movements uh, right up against the value loss. So some concern there. Now looking at power centers, you've got a little bit different formula here because the operating expense rate is lower. Uh, let's say we've got gross potential rent of two million five, a 10% vacancy factor, 20% operating expenses, and a 7% cap rate on a million eight net operating income. That gives us a value of 25,700,000. But if we say that the rent increase is 0% and the expense increase is 2.8%, then taking those same numbers, adding them to the mix, and capping them at seven gives you a slightly lower value of 25534000 So once again, just like multifamily, a little bit of a value drop here. Now we're right on the line. Take, the takeaway here is that you've really got to be mindful of the valuation component. Now we didn't beat these up too badly, so let's go back and add a 25 basis point in, increase in the cap rate, and let's bump up vacancy by 2%. That can happen in a quarter. You all know that's not a situation that's out of line. It's actually very much in line with expectations. And if you do that, the multifamily property drops to 720000 which is a 6% value loss, and the power center drops to $24 million, which is a 7% value loss. So odds are we've probably got some uh, value degradation there in the CRE sectors. Now, a special uh, segment um, in regard to valuations is hotels. And I wanted to run through the findings of a recent study that shows real appraised value loss on hotels. These have been hard to nail down. It was produced by Hotel Valuation Services, HVS. It's a global hotel firm that our bank uses. And the study can be found at hvs.com. The study shows a breakdown by value loss of 140 same-store appraisals that were originally appraised between 2017 and 2019, and these were reappraised between July and September of this year. The great bulk of the appraisal showed a value loss of negative 15 to negative 30 percent. 
Now, there were outliers on both sides, but in the aggregate, the value loss was real. And as a pool, the group had a pre-COVID valuation of $6.6 billion. Now the number's $5 billion, so there's a 24% value loss. Uh, those numbers are really certainly within the ranges that I hear anecdotally from other bankers, appraisers, and developers in the market, um, also from uh, regulators. So I expect that that 15 to 30% is probably normal for a hotel value loss, and an extreme case may be uh, 50% plus. So moving along, uh, let's look at sector overviews here. And we're going to focus on hotel and retail. Um, there'll be a quick overview on office and multifamily. Warehouse uh, will not be covered. And the reason I'm doing this is illustrated by a report on real capital analytics on distressed commercial real estate loan inflows. It's a little bit dated, and we expect a new one shortly. But check these stats out. So looking at distressed inflows for second quarter of 2020, they exceeded any other quarter going back to 2007, and they amounted to $40 billion. Now, 92% of the $40 billion in distressed inflows consisted of hotel and retail properties, and that's why we're going to focus on those two sectors. We've got a fairly clear read on the prospects for those sectors, which is a good thing, and I've got a lot of confidence in the outlook I'll show you for those today. Conversely, office and multifamily make up a very small percentage of the inflows, the outlook on those sectors is not as clear. The jury is really still out. Um, office has a wide range of differing opinions. Um, each tenant, each landlord has one in mind, so they're in the thousands. And we don't really have enough data on multifamily to make a call for sure, but we can look at existing demand factors to determine what might happen. Like I said, warehouse barely registers and in most cases has benefited from the pandemic. All right. So I'm going to go to uh, in the order of best to worst in terms of my sector outlooks. So let's jump into multifamily first. And I've got five factors to consider on my outlook for multifamily. First off, uh, multifamily cap rates remain generally stable. And we saw that in the viral valuations discussion, just not a lot of movement uh, there. The multifamily sector is still pretty high and is attracting a lot of investment dollars. Number two, despite higher costs, construction is still robust. Per CBRE research for the third quarter of 2020, multifamily construction starts are up approximately 20%. And that includes a dip in unit construction during April and May. Uh, that said, late 2021 and 2022 starts could wane as evidenced by slowing permit volume. That's down 22% year over year as of the end of the third quarter. Number three, metrics vary widely amongst different classes and geographies. Class A properties show evidence of negative rent growth and occupancy growth, particularly in the urban core markets. Now, these are the same markets that carried oversupply risks before the arrival of COVID-19. So COVID served as an accelerant here on an already existing problem. Conversely, Class C properties generally exhibiting, exhibiting rental growth and higher occupancies. Even with a wave of January evictions, the shortage of workforce housing could actually strengthen the rent rolls of Class C properties in the longer term. Like I said, there's a workforce housing shortage, and wait lists are not uncommon at those properties. And this supply issue, it was already present before the pandemic. It was an issue back then, and it will be a major focus of the next administration in Washington. Number four, multifamily properties are trading. Now, the Real Capital Analytics Multifamily Commercial Property Price Index rose 6.7% year-over-year in the third quarter, 
that vastly outperformed the all-property index gain of 1.4%. Now, volume was down 67% in the second quarter. It improved to being down 51% in the third quarter. And we don't have final numbers for fourth quarter, but we have seen a rush to buy in this segment, and it could be tied uh, to the development of the vaccine. So uh, things are moving in multifamily. And they're moving because liquidity is readily available now as opposed to the last recession. Number five, and lastly, uh, demographic and socioeconomic trends support the multifamily sector. Now, though older millennials may be moving into suburban single-family homes at a greater rate, you hear that all the time, home prices have increased approximately 10%. And that's put the median price of an American home at over $300,000 per the National Association of Realtors, so a pretty expensive uh, home. Um, that lack of affordability and changes in preference really bode well for the prospects of the multifamily sector. Um, going below the millennials and looking at Generation Z, this is the group that's just coming out of college right now, uh, the Generation Z members are the first to test the waters of the workplace, and, and, and they're finding real slim pickings. Companies are suspending recruiting efforts across the board. Um, lastly, unemployment numbers support rental over home ownership, and this can really be seen as good or bad. Unemployment may take away your rental base, but on the other hand, you're not going to buy a home there and you're going to look for rental housing. Looking at uh, the Gen Z portion, 50% of that 18 to 25-year-old group are living with mom and dad. So think of that as demand and waiting. Um, so that should certainly drive demand for multifamily. And then unemployment is closely tied to evictions, obviously. We'll see how the employment piece um, hangs in there and, and how the eviction moratorium that's set to expire at the end of the year uh, resolves itself. Now, we need to be mindful of unemployment. So let's look at where we stand in Georgia, for instance. Uh, we've had a good bit of recovery that's occurred. At its trough in April, the state of Georgia had lost 10.8% of its jobs, but by October, that number had fallen to 2.8%. Major metro recoveries ranged from the high 1% to 5% of pre-COVID jobs lost. So let's look at another state, Florida. It lost 13% of its pre-COVID employment. By October, that number had shrunk to 5.3%, so a little bit higher than Georgia. Major metros there have been slower to recover because of the high numbers of jobs tied to hospitality and food services, two sectors that have obviously been severely impacted by the pandemic. I do want to caution you about official unemployment numbers and rates because there are several factors that need to be considered to get the full picture. Um, I want to tell you about a breakdown done by the Economic Policy Institute. That's a great site. I'd mark it. They've got good, new, uh, good information, good research. Um, they did a study of unemployment as of October. And as of October, they showed 11.1 million officially unemployed people. That's a BLS number, and we're good with that. But what we're not good with is the 3.1 million workers who are unemployed but are misclassified as employed or not in the labor force. And if you look at a BLS release, you'll see a statement that says they have issues with the data, and the real unemployment rate is about 1% to 2% higher. Next, you also have 4.5 million workers that dropped out of the labor force. Now, that's an estimate, and it's a comparison of pre- and intra-COVID labor force numbers. But that affects the uh, unemployment rate and makes it look better than it actually is. And then there's what I call the walking wounded. Now, there's 7 million people 
who have a job but aren't making what they once did because they either had a cut in pay or hours. So that's significant. We had 11.1 million unemployed people, but when you consider that entire picture, the impacted worker total is just under 26 million. So keep that in mind. That's a large number and it affects all of commercial real estate significantly. One great source that you can use to check on the health of the multi-sector is the National Multifamily Housing Council Rent Tracker, which reports on collection rates for apartments across the U.S. Uh, since May, we haven't had a large drop-off in multifamily collections, roughly about 1.5% year-over-year. I and most of my peers believed we would see some drop-off in September, but that never showed up in the survey, ostensibly because America saved a good bit of its stimulus checks. I should say that we act like another 1.5% isn't bad, but when you're looking at an 11.5 million sample, that's another 173,000 units that aren't paying rent. What I can tell you is that this tracker, what this tracker observes about the 12 million, 12 million units that are reported on by various leasing outfits, property management software companies, basically anything digital and big data. And for that reason, it probably won't catch the mom and pops and will be more likely to capture A and B properties and not C. So we can assume that those rates for C-class properties are a good bit lower just because of the tenant base. But like I said, that's not entirely bad. Now, looking at December collection rates, and we've got data through the first part of the week, um, we did start December on a sour note as collections dropped to 75% for the first week of December compared to 83% for the same period in 2019. Now, it could be that renters decided that they were going to spend their paycheck on Black Friday goods and just pay their rent late. And frankly, that would be okay with me. But what would hurt is if this shows that safe stimulus has truly run out, or if renters have just said to hell with it because of the expiration of the eviction moratorium. As I said, multifamily is a tough one to call. The sector should be a lot clearer by the end of January, though. I personally think it's going to be fine. We will just need to watch uh, where we had supply issues before, monitor that, but the sector is solid overall. All right, switching to office. If the multifamily sector outlook is a little bit hazy, then the office outlook lies behind a dense wall of sea fog with a harsh storm approaching. There are so many views on where this sector is going, and that's really because there's so much variation in the tenant base. Everyone has a different opinion here. Tenants, landlords, developers, prognosticators, you name it. What we absolutely do know about office, though, is that work from home is real and it's with us forever uh, to varying degrees. Now, there's some interesting studies out there that show who performs best in the work from home environment. And if you consider it, it will give you insight into rent roles if you know how the tenants operate. Here's what we're hearing. First, work from home seems to work best for highly educated, higher income, and older workers in professional and technical jobs. Second, work from home works least well for the inverse in administrative and support staff. So think about that and then think about who your tenants may be in an office complex. If you're looking for tenants who actually may be more prone to work at home, you're probably looking at law firms, consulting companies, CPAs, those are the jobs that are most likely to leave and go back to the house. Now, there is general agreement on some market trends as to what is preferred and what is to be avoided. And the move away or the bad words um, consist of, of gateway markets, which, of course, we don't have those in the southeast. 
except for Miami, but uh, something to consider there. Uh, density is a bad word, and that has to do with proximity and, of course, um, concerns about the virus. Uh, mass transit is interestingly seen as a negative factor. Um, it, this takes me back to 9-11 when uh, prognosticators said that the New York City subway wouldn't be used anymore, that people would stay away from mass transit, but that didn't transpire. So I assume that we'll probably be right back on the metro or the MARTA or whatever as soon as uh, the vaccine is distributed. But what really matters in these factors to me is uh, functional obsolescence and property damage. I'm going to cover that in just a little bit um, in, a, uh, in just a second. But to me, those are the biggest uh, factors um, driving office, the future of office. Now, there's a move towards secondary and tertiary markets, suburban markets. And they're looking for markets that are near cheaper housing, that are spread out, and uh, markets that have a really good business environment. And Georgia and North Carolina come to mind, both tied for number one as the Site Selection Magazine Best Business Environment in the Country Award. Interestingly, if you put all those things together, it looks good for the Southeast, and it sounds like sprawl may actually be a good thing for once. So we'll, we'll hope for that. Uh, there are a couple of headline stats out there that have caused some severe heartburn for credit officers with a large office portfolio. And I want to act like Alka-Seltzer and take the sting out of that for you. Uh, the two stats are net absorption and subleasing. And let's look at the net absorption stats. In the third quarter, 2020, net absorption equaled negative 33.5 million square feet. That's a fat number. But when you combine the third quarter and the second quarter of 2020, you get a negative net absorption of minus 54.9 million square feet. Now, that number exceeds the entire net absorption figure from 2008 to 2010 of minus 48 million square feet. That's a headline stat that is almost designed to attract the attention of regulators and scare analysts. But let me mitigate that comment with this stat, too. Of that negative net absorption, 90% of the activity occurred in the New York to Boston corridor, the state of California, and the state of Texas. So not a lot of that in the southeast. Now, subleasing also has a headline stat that's a little scary, and that is that 180 million square feet of sublease space is now on the market. That's up 43% from last year. But when you consider the fact that it's especially prevalent in tech markets like Seattle, San Francisco, and Austin, and then you look at specific uh, tenants like AT&T, which has 5 million square feet up for sublease. It's really not that bad of a situation and less likely to affect the southeast. Now, those mitigating factors don't change the fact that shrinking the CRE footprint of a company has been a popular expense control measure since 2008, and efforts have been ramping up for that heading into 2020 for a long time. And in this environment, everyone has entered the sublease market all at once. So it is a factor and something that needs to be considered. But keep in mind that subleasing means that somebody is paying the lease. So it's not, not a loss yet. Um, the hope here is that an imminent vaccine and a quick deployment will cool the heels of, of companies that are hot to move and, and consolidate space. Now, like I mentioned before, property vintage and functional obsolescence are really paramount issues when office recovery is concerned. My gut tells me 
that there's about a 10 to 15% discount to pre-COVID-19 values on your normal office building these days. And I'm talking about a nice Class B, not brand new, but not 30 years old, maybe 15 years old. Um, and there's really a solid reason for that beyond the math. And, and if you go through the math and you look at current rent rates and vacancies, that's about what you're going to see. But also think about how a modern office would be built today. It is significantly different than the office of 2019. First off, you'd have a greater IT infrastructure to accommodate more work from home. I've talked to some disaster planners for companies that used to say that the worst case scenario that they could possibly imagine is that 50% of their company work from home. And we go into an environment in March where 100% of workforces are working from home and it just stress systems left and right. So greater IT components will comprise each building and that'll be an expense uh, definitely in construction. Uh, better air filtration, um, more and more frequent elevator systems, and also layouts that reduce proximity uh, will be important. Uh, there will be a concern, even with a vaccine, that, that, that you don't want to be too close to other people. If you think about it, those are all elements of functional obsolescence, uh, where you look around and you see how elements of the office performs and, and whether or not that's really useful in today's climate. Now, I have an example that I'd like to share with you that came from the PwC ULI Emerging Trends Report, and it's fascinating and really shows where we're heading. Um, here's the situation, and I'm paraphrasing here. I'd go uh, back to their example and, and get the much more eloquently delivered version, but let's say that you wake up in the morning, and this is the modern office example. You wake up in the morning, and you log on to your company app, and whether you feel good or bad, you select a button on the app and you say, okay, I feel good today, I'm coming in. And that app goes to a central uh, building management system in the new office of the future, and it says, okay, Cal feels good today. Um, we're going to put him in the pool of people that feel good, but we've also had 10 people that are calling in sick. And what we've noticed is uh, through an analysis of the building is that the 10 people who were sick were on floor three and Cal normally works on floor three. So what the building management system will do is it will basically close off floor three, uh, janitorial will go there, clean the area, they will move people away from floor three and put them in space, let's say they put them in the northeast corner of floor four, and they, in sort of a hotel operation where you just grab a desk. And the utility systems will redirect to where people are actually working and they will shut down in areas where you don't need them to save money. Um, all of the access points uh, will be touchless, as will uh, bathroom doors. The, the uh, hand stations will consist of ultraviolet light. There'll be all kinds of, of different systems put into place. So it really comes down to the way the building management system functions, the way that property technology is, putting, uh, is being put to use to um, adapt to the post-COVID world, and we really are going to see a, an amazing revolution in the way that office product uh, is developed. But once again, uh, go look at the PwC ULI Emerging Trends Report, read it. it. It is a fascinating article and shows exactly where we're headed. Now, switching office gears and going to medical office, uh, certainly it's topical. It's one of the better performing subsectors. 
just a few quick stats here. Um, the vacancy rate for medical office is 9%, and it's going up because deliveries are outstripping net absorption. Uh, no rocket science there. And the reason that you're seeing deliveries continue to accelerate is because medical office rents are up a whopping 9%. That is, that is insane, almost through the roof, and it, it is actually beating some components of logistics warehouse. Um, medical office is also seeing a migration back to the suburbs. And this is after years of coming from the suburbs back to hospital campuses and centralized locations. So this is an interesting switch. Um, the demand for medical office is going to continue to be high. Uh, with Biden being elected, you can bet that the uh, emphasis will be placed on maintaining the insured population. Uh, the uninsured population pre-Obamacare was 18%, now it's 9%. So regardless of what you think about the program, it is creating more demand for medical services, and that does benefit the medical office sector. And if you look at the layout of medical office, it's far better suited for COVID-19. When I walk into um, my daughter's pediatrician's office, there's a, a entrance on the left for sick people and an entrance on the right for well people, and they're kept separated. They already have drive-through flu testing. They had it before COVID. Um, they have all kinds of safeguards in place that are basically tailor-made for an environment where you may have some sort of virus or pandemic situation. So they don't have the functional obsolescence that you see in a normal uh, office building. But that doesn't mean that medical office is, is impervious to technolo uh, technological shifts. Telemedicine is a threat there. And we're seeing that many, many more people are willing to use telemedicine. These same people were absolutely unwilling to use it last year because they wanted to see the doctor, but the fear of the virus has certainly made them much more amenable to using it. So we are seeing much more of a demand for telemedicine, and that is a threat to the medical office sector. All right, uh, it is retail time now, the most maligned sector heading into the pandemic, uh, but to me, one of the most fascinating. Uh, COVID-19 did some direct damage that came out of nowhere to tenants like gyms and restaurants and movie theaters. But for the most part, it just exacerbated pre-existing conditions. And please excuse that awful medical pun, but that's exactly what they were. So let's look at the numbers heading into and out of 2020. Uh, COVID-19, like I said, did serve for an accelerant for retail heading into the pandemic. In 2019, uh, 10,302 store closures were announced for 113 million square feet of store space. In 2020, we are up to year-to-date 11,000 store closure announcements for 150 million square feet of space. So not a whole bunch of difference. It shows you that the same trend was in place. And these were mostly driven by the 40 declared bankruptcies that we saw in 2020. Now, this trend will go beyond COVID. The vaccine can come and go, as will the, the virus, but we'll continue to see store closures. And the latest estimates I've seen call for 75,000 to 125,000 store closures over the next five years. Now, looking at holiday 2020, because this was going to be a, or is going to be a big indicator as to the health of the consumer, um, the projections for e-commerce called for a 33% increase overall and a 25% increase in November. And the numbers that we actually saw, Black Friday, you had $9 billion in sales for a 21.6% year-over-year increase. 
Cyber Monday had 10.8 billion in sales for a 15.1% year-over-year increase. So not quite hitting the targets, but we'll see how December goes. Maybe that will get a little bit better. Um, look at the openings that we're hearing about. Uh, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, and Family Dollar have all announced store openings. Uh, Aldi, Lidl, and other grocery stores have announced openings and expansion. So what do those uh, stores have in common? They're all recession hedges, and they all serve necessities. So that may give you an indicator of the retail industry's uh, view of, of where we might be headed. Now, that's the bad news, but surprisingly, there's been some legitimate good news over the past nine months. Uh, we do some advanced analytics on our commercial customers to look at year-over-year -year cash inflows, and we use them as a proxy for revenues. And what we found year-over-year -year is that our cash inflows for customers are positive in the following retail categories, grocery discount stores and necessities, health and drug, general retail trade, other services, which is like hair and nail salons, massage, these kinds of inline service providers, and quick serve and fast casual restaurants. And it's not just uh, confined to those areas. We've seen record sales in leisure categories specifically during the pandemic. Boat sales were up 30% year over year, used boat sales up 70%, um, RV sales, and you know, an RV is expensive. They're up 10% year over year. We've seen home improvement projects start up 60% with an average project cost of about $1,500. So there's a lot of activity going on at your Lowe's and Home Depot. And these are all caused by people stuck at home looking at the yards thinking, man, I sure would like a nice new deck. Um, I, I do, when I look at these numbers, I think about, you know, some of the anecdotes that I heard. And, and I'd ask, how many of you went to a boat dealer in the late spring? Let's say you had a nice vacation plan, but it got canceled. The family's not going. So instead you thought, I'm going to buy a boat or a jet ski or something like that. And you went to the boat store. You thought you were going to get a great deal because all these small business people were having trouble during COVID. And what you found out was that they were all sold out. You'd probably be paying a premium for one, and you'd probably be waiting six months until you got it. I mean, that had to do with the shift in, in, in consumption demand going from things like trips to hobbies and recreational uses. And it also had a lot to do with supply chain issues. Now, supply chain issues have been sort of a burr in my crawl for a little bit. I've been trying to get a green egg hinge assembly. I mentioned that in the last FHLB presentation, and I just got one last week. It took me five months. I'm back to grilling. That irritates me, but it does show you the impact of, of the supply chain. Now, those categories served as substitutes for travel and vacation expenditures, but they also pulled demand forward. So that means that where we saw expenditures in these industries, we're going to see those um, sort of contract next year and, and compensate for what we saw this year. I guarantee you that boat sales will be super low next summer. Um, moving on to retail uh, collections. Uh, Datex is a great retail data collection service that we use. It provides a lot of its products for free. I'd certainly check them out at datexdata.com. Uh, one of the retail comparisons they publish shows the difference between the total rent collections for retail tenants overall and they also show national and non-national tenants. And as of the end of November, all tenants uh, were paying at a rate of 85% of uh, rents demanded. Uh, national tenants were paying 90%, and non-nationals were paying 82%.
And if you haven't been looking at these numbers for a while, that may seem a little bit low, but that is far better than the 54% number that we saw in May of 2020. So a much better increase there in collections. And if you dig in to that Daytex data and you look at the individual tenants and the rates at which they're paying and they offer that data for free, um, you really see these tenants break down into three tiers. Uh, the first one is the minimal impact tiers. These are tenants like auto supplies, grocery discount and warehouse, cellular stores, uh, quick and fast casual restaurants, health and drug, home improvement and garden. There's also a moderate impact group. These would be like inline services, but they're trending up. You're seeing more and more people go to the hair salon, um, the nail salon, the massage place. Uh, we also have some that are trending down, and those would be uh, full-service uh, restaurants, specifically uh, old-format franchise-type things. So we're seeing those types of restaurants do uh, poorer and poorer, and, and several of them are closing. And then, of course, you've got a maximum impact group that can barely pay the rent, and these would be big-box apparel stores that had trouble before COVID, uh, mall stores, that um, had trouble before COVID, and then the ones that were directly impacted by COVID and, and really weren't a victim of acceleration, it was just annihilation. These were movie theaters and fitness centers and the like. Now, given the positive and the negative trends that we've seen and who is and who isn't paying rent, let me give you my good and bad tenant list for 2021. Um, on the winter side, we've got the auto parts, the drugstores, the dollar stores, the fast, fast, casual restaurants, and I'd actually put um, full-service restaurants in here, too, later in the year. The sales stores and the service tenants, like medical health and personal grooming, they'll all do well. Now, out of that group, only the service tenants really suffered through COVID. Um, the losers, and what makes this category interesting is that it consists of a lot of retailers that have done very well through the COVID, and, and this is that compensation factor I was talking about, sporting goods, home improvement, pet supplies, office supplies, hobby stores, those big ticket toy kinds of things, they'll be uh, faring uh, less robustly than they did in 2020. Um, and then of course, the ones where we had pre-existing problems like apparel and old format uh, franchise restaurants will do poorly. Uh, two risks I'd ask you to, to consider as we close out this retail topic, uh, the first would be related to the current COVID-19 surge and its effect on retail, specifically restaurants. Um, we use open table data a lot. That's the online restaurant reservation service. Uh, it compares diners served as a percentage of 2019 totals to show the impact of COVID. And it's noteworthy how hard the recent COVID surge in Europe hit UK restaurant dining. Uh, it was back up to 100% of more or more of 2019 totals in the summer, but the recent surge has called closures that made the rate plunge to around 20%. Um, this is opposed to rates in the United States and various Southeast states that are performing very well now, but if we did have that level of shutdowns, then you would see us go back down to that 20% rate. So there's still a real possibility here in the U.S. given the huge increase of cases and I don't think we can say that we're totally out of the woods yet in specific sectors, especially restaurants. And the second thing I'd ask you to consider on retail in terms of risk going forward, and, and this is an old uh, set of risks, I call them the three L's, labor, logistics, and leverage. 
Um, expense issues related to these three were the root of most of the retail problems for the past few years, as it's just extremely difficult for a legacy retailer to meet all three of these challenges. Looking at labor, these costs have already been cut to the bone. You can't move them down anymore. Um, looking at the logistics piece, that's the creation of a logistics network and omnichannel distribution system development. Those are expensive and extremely difficult to achieve without scale or significant external help. And then the third L is leverage. This is generally in the form of private equity. It continues to take retailers out, uh, specifically in the mall space, where it's just caused all kinds of damage. So watch labor costs, watch logistics, and watch leverage on retailers' uh, income statements and balance sheets, and you will see um, who could be at most risk of closure in 2021. Okay. Saving the worst for last, let's discuss hotels. And let's begin with the situation pre-COVID-19. Um, in January, we were seeing some cyclical inflection. That means that the slope of the line was turning over. For those of you who have forgotten your math, um, that cyclical inflection indicated that the peak of the hotel cycle had passed. Um, frankly, the hotel industry had experienced nine straight years of positive metric growth. So that's occupancy rate and average daily rate. And those two uh, feed into a metric called RevPAR. If, if you don't do a lot with hotels, it means revenue per available room, and it's the statistic that we really use to measure hotel performance. Um, a lack of uh, supply that was delivered in the first few years after recession because it was too much already and people were gun-shot and developed really fostered that growth in metrics. But the deliveries in rooms um, and rooms in planning increased significantly in 2016, and that's what caused this cyclical peak over the course of the next four years. Um, in fact, most of the southeastern markets that we track uh, were due for a mild supply shock in 2020, and, and when those units hit the market, um, we would have expected, without COVID, a very slow, smooth downward march in the hotel cycle. But that wasn't to be uh, to be kind, COVID-19 shot the industry in the kneecaps, just dropped it, and that smooth ride we expected turned into a sudden free fall that resulted in thousands of lost jobs and many, many calls to CRE lenders requesting payment deferrals. Nine months into the pandemic, though, how are we looking? Well, the hardest hit segment has been hotels targeted at businesses and convention patronage specifically. Uh, the markets that show the most damage are generally larger gateway markets, business centers, and markets with a good bit of international travel. So on a trailing 12 basis, and we do that to eliminate the seasonality in the hotel sector, uh, we see a convention-heavy market like Nashville, which is one of the most popular markets for convention these days, almost down 40% in occupancy and 30% on ADR. Um, if we look at a market with a heavy international tourism component like Orlando, that's down 40% in occupancy and almost 20% in average daily rate or ADR. So those numbers are severe, and they're even more so when we look at them as a, at a pure year-over-year -year ref par comparison, not a seasonally adjusted trailing 12 rate. What is somewhat surprising, though, is that hotels in drivable secondary and tertiary markets that have a leisure element have performed comparatively well. And when I say leisure, I don't necessarily mean beachfront or something like that, though that would certainly qualify. I'm talking about anywhere that has the attraction of being a great place to go for a weekend, and in our region that may be 
Savannah, Charleston, Chattanooga, places like that. Though there is certainly a significant negative movement in the same trailing 12 occupancy and ADR rates that we saw in the larger markets, the severity is much less. Now, when we look at year-over-year -year REFPAR numbers for the same markets in October, you get a number that is a pure COVID, non-COVID comparison. And like I said, those numbers are extreme. Nashville's down negative 69%. Austin is negative 68%, as is Orlando. That said, the secondary tertiary markets that are drivable with that leisure element easily outperform the national average year-over-year -year change in REFPAR of negative 50%. And some are actually up because seasonality has become less of a factor in places like the beach markets, like Pensacola, Florida, for instance, which is up 27% year-over-year in rainfall, which is just remarkable. Now, it's a net positive for the economy that the performance is better in these leisure properties, because when you look at the $1.1 spent on travel each year, $792 million comes from the leisure sector, so about 75%. And of the 9 million jobs that the hospitality industry uh, claimed in 2019, 6.5 of them were in the leisure sector. Um, there's some recent surveys that show people's propensity to take trips. And when you look at people considering a trip in the next six months, the probability of taking a leisure trip increased 45%. But if you looked at the probability of taking a business trip, it only increased 27%. And, you know, we talked about the distance element to some degree when I've said drivable. Um, that's a characteristic of the better performing markets. Uh, there's just a marked difference in the travel type since COVID. If you look at year-over-year -year plane trips, they're down 67%, whereas driving trips are only down 9% year-over-year. And they were actually up year-over-year over, year over Labor Day. So I really see a very quick recovery for properties in the smaller drivable markets with a leisure component, but a much slower recovery for the properties that cater to business travel in larger markets. So why is that? And, and so why are business uh, properties uh, worse in this case? Well, there are multiple reasons that we'll see a slower recovery for that business convention segment. First off, and this is the most obvious, I'm coming from a podcast, but the original uh, part of this presentation was done via Zoom call. The popularity of virtual meetings and their operational refinements, not to mention their money-saving features, work against business travel, uh, as do lingering health concerns. Those, however, should subside as we go through 2021. And, and in my opinion, there are really two big factors that are considerable that are not really being discussed as much as they should be. And the first is corporate budgeting. Um, when you think about corporate budgeting and you look at where we are in 2020, if you work for a corporation, you probably sat down in the early to mid-fall and said, okay, I'm going to start putting my budget together. And I guarantee you that the first thing you did was cut out all the travel for the remainder of 2020 and the bulk of the travel for 2021 because you did not know at that point when a vaccine was going to hit. And those budgets were put together. They were approved. They were used to make projections into the next year. And then we got a vaccine that looked like it may be fully distributed by about June of next year. Well, that didn't mean that businesses rush to go put travel dollars right back on their budget. Most companies can't. Everybody is in expense control mode with COVID. And the first thing to be cut were these travel budgets. So 
businesses to some degree in regards to business travel are sort of between a rock and a hard place. They've painted themselves in a corner because they're not going to pump money back into the budget to a considerable degree uh, for corporate travel. So so that's an issue. I mean, granted, there'll be some, but it wouldn't be nearly as much, I believe, if uh, we had known that a vaccine was on the horizon. The second is an issue of liability. And if you think about, um, you know, part of the stimulus package that's, that's holding up delivery of that is uh, the concern of liability for companies, whether or not they can be sued for COVID. Um, think about if a company can get sued if someone gets sick on a business trip from workers' comp. That may limit a company's um, desire to send people out on the road. And it could be that they have an employee that refuses to get a vaccine, and that brings up privacy concerns and, and whether a company can actually force someone to take a vaccine to mitigate some of those risks. And we don't know the answers to those. Those are unknowns in the sector. But those two, corporate budgeting and the issues of liability, are really two big factors that are uh, stymieing corporate and, uh, business and convention travel in 2021. And, and I don't think we're going to see any real recovery there until about the March, uh, until about March of 2022. Uh, one last thing uh, in hotel supply shocks. They were an issue pre-COVID, and they have not gone away. Uh, there is no doubt that additional hotel supply is going to serve as a drag on hotel recovery in 2021. So, to sum it all up, that's been a lot. Uh, this recession has been totally different uh, than the one we saw in 2008 for the factors that I mentioned. Um, our fates with hotel, you know, from a bank perspective, uh, we're going to be judged by the prudence we took when we put those loans on the books. Uh, did we get good equity? Did we get good guarantees? We're, I think that the performance and, and, the, and the rates of default will absolutely be determined by that. And then, of course, um, which segment of the hotel sector they're in. Uh, retail properties, I didn't mention this, but they've essentially matured about three years and six months. If you're a retail operation and you're still functioning, then you probably learned to do a lot of digital uh, new operations and learned all kinds of tricks to cut your expenses to the bone. So um, you've really seen a lot of evolution there in just a short amount of time. Um, the impact of the office sector will take the longest to manifest. It's just not clear. You're talking about um, tenants with long leases, so uh, it'll take a while for those to play out, and, and we'll, it, it probably will take um, three years, uh, I would say, to get a real good, clear read on how office fares. Um, lastly, the multifamily drivers look strong despite some of the issues with unemployment and the eviction moratorium. I still think long-term that looks good. And then uh, also, when you look at COVID-19, talked about it as an accelerant. I mean, it's really been timed in a fashion to be the most devastating. Consider, where, consider when it hit. It hit retail right at a time when it was in a fight uh, with e-commerce and brick and mortar for the survival of, of the old school retail front. It hit hotel right at the metric peak when supply shocks were about to come in. It hit office when companies were trying to downsize their office footprint across the board and area per worker were, uh, were at historic lows. Um, the only one that it didn't really pop was warehouse and then multifamily to an extent. So the timing of COVID really, really has been a kicker, let me tell you. 
Um, lastly, four items to consider heading into 2021. Things that I'm going to be watching over the next month or two. First off, uh, retail spending and e-commerce data from December. We're behind the ball projection-wise. Um, we need to see if we can rebound. Uh, Consumption is going to drive us towards a stronger GDP. Uh, consumer, um, consumer strength has always led us out of recessions and powered our growth, and it's going to continue to do that in 21. We just need to see how strong it's going to be. The uh, pace and course of the presidential transition is paramount. Um, we've talked about the eviction moratorium, multifamily in particular, could see some turbulence. Um, when you think about the stimulus piece of this, because that's related to the transition, there's, uh, there's talk that we may see it before the end of the year. And although we heard $3 trillion, then we heard $1.5 trillion, then we heard $980 billion, now we're hearing $650 billion. That number is, is probably going to end up around $1 trillion all in, would be my guess. Um, it's going to have a major impact on all sectors. It will include another round of uh, 3P uh, loans. It's just going to be harder to qualify for that. Small businesses are going to have to show real revenue loss. It'll probably have a rent subsidy of some type. It'll include funding for vaccine uh, distribution, cold storage, uh, supplies, all that kind of stuff. There will be some sort of unemployment kicker like we had in the last one, just not nearly to that degree. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that subsidy plays out. But that is a major part of the presidential transition. And um, hopefully we can get something settled by the end of the year. But if not, we'll see it uh, probably move on into the latter part of January. Um, the pace of the vaccine distribution is a huge element. It is a function of the transition uh, process, and, and it's probably the most important factor on the list. As most of you have heard, there are three uh, vaccines that are really, well, that are over 90% uh, efficacy and, and look like they're at a state where they could be um, moving and distributed. The Pfizer vaccine already has uh, been distributed. Uh, the Moderna vaccine should be ready soon, and the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine should be ready as well. The Moderna does not have to be stored at the same level of cold storage that the Pfizer one does, so it may be more easily movable and distributed. Um, what we've heard is that there'll be 40 million doses by the end of the year from Pfizer and Moderna, but it takes two doses, so that's 20 million people. The CDC has said that healthcare and first responders uh, will get it first, then the elderly. I've heard um, some examples of uh, some advanced military units uh, getting the vaccine in mid to late December. Um, one problem that we see right now is that Pfizer alone can't fill the U.S. demand. We only purchased 100 million doses. The other 100 million that were available were purchased by foreign countries. So we will see the Moderna and the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine uh, fill a good portion of the demand in the U.S. And uh, lastly, the vintage of commercial real estate product and the degree of economic obsolescence, I think that's really going to be the story of CRE going forward. Um, prop tech, property technology is going to dominate hotel and office discussions like we talked about. And it'll really set the pace of the evolution of CRE for many, many years to come. It will have effects on values. It will have effects on how our loan portfolios are constructed and, and those those components, the vintage piece, the degree of obsolescence will become uh, conversations that are held much, much more frequently with analysts and regulators. Okay, so with that, 
Um, I appreciate your time today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And uh, uh, best wishes for a safe and well New Year's and a good and profitable 2021. Thank you very much. Thank you.